Hey now, people call me Paul, people call you, just to say hi. This episode of the 3DL Podcast is brought to you by, uh, that's that's what we're going to say when someone decides they want to give us a little kickback, but of course I'd keep doing this for free. There's so many, so many ins, so many outs, so many what have yous, keeps my mind limber. Today you're going to have a chance to hear from someone who I think you'll see has a real knack for making people smile and feel good about themselves. In spite of, oh, I mean, and he's also a physicist. I just, I can't keep it a secret for any longer. I think he's really going to tie your room together. Let's do this. Hi, my name is Stuart Tesmer, and I am a believer in three-dimensional learning. Stuart Tesmer, America's friendliest physicist. That's what it says on um, Wikipedia. So I want to I want to start. I want to ask you about physicists in general, and I want to be careful not to offend anyone or perpetuate any unfair or harmful stereotypes. Um, you know, I I probably know more physicists than your average person, but I do not claim to understand them or much of what they do. <laughs> And I know you don't speak for all of them, but for you, what what forces drew you into physics? See what I did there? <laughs> yeah, good uh, good verb usage um, or noun choice. Uh, so what forces? Hmm. And my honest uh, um, personal story is physics ended up being a default for me. Um, I certainly grew up uh, loving science and being interested in everything um, science fiction and science fact. Um, but I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do with my life. I enjoyed physics in high school. I, um, did not major in physics right away in college. For example, I tried out some other things first and it was none of the other things that interested me as much and majoring in physics turned out to be a default. And, um, um, for me, it was the right choice, uh, even though I, I came about it in an indirect way. And I really do love my career. I want to get some statistics on this because it seems like way more people, and I think I, I would fall in this bucket too, and some other people that we've, I've talked to here, um, you know, it's something like a default or at least for a while, a path of, le- of least resistance instead of this grand plan. That's, yeah, definitely true for me. Um, I, if I, if I, sometimes I think I would have loved to go into robotics when I see uh, footage of people with their little bouncing machine or their, their uh, mechanical dog that keeps it, its balance amazingly, I think I would have loved to be in a field like that. Let's, let's return to physics. What, what, what do you think makes it seem so inaccessible to, to so many people? I think it's really the culture. Um, I, some people do a great job of using physics to show how smart they are. And that happens in other fields too. I think it's in the medical fields, I see this where the jargon really can be impenetrable from people who are not in the field. And that's used um, in a unfriendly way uh, to exclude people. Um, and maybe physics, some of, some physicists are more guilty than others of um just making it sound harder than it is and making it less tangible. You know, physics is the most tangible science. It should be the easiest one to explain to people and get them excited about it. 
um, in my mm. most tangible. Can I say that? You know, it's what you forces and collisions and contact. Um, that's all physics, of course. Yeah, I think about some of the books that I read. I'm reading my little daughters, and it's it really is easy to get them excited and me. I'm like, I don't like you know planets, you know the planet books and whatever. It's uh, it's amazing stuff that we can figure out somehow. And some and then somewhere along the way, we we lose a bunch of people. I, maybe maybe we're gonna run before we walk here. But um, do you think that three dimensional learning could have an impact in terms of making physics more accessible to say like a non major undergrad? Well, I even have some data. Um, so our most three dimensional instruction for introductory physics is a course called P cubed. And I know you're very familiar with that, Paul, but uh, for the benefit of your audience, it's an introductory mechanics course, um, covers Newton's laws, momentum is conserved, energy, um, the usual things you would expect in a mechanics course. It has no lectures at all. It's all um, problem solving in groups. What are the three, what's the P cubed about? Thank you for slowing me down. It's projects and practices in physics. So PPP and ends up with a P cube um, as, a, as a short name. Um, certainly with regard to um, uh, gender, females are um, disproportionately taking that course compared to our traditional lecture section. Um, it's a typical uh, P cubed section will be um, actually more than 50% female, 40%, um, at least in somewhere in that ballpark, whereas the tradi traditional lecture format would have a typically have a much smaller percentage. So the proof is in the numbers, at least with regard to females, that um, they're finding that project-based courses with lots of practices and lots of three-dimensional learning to be the one they're enjoying the most, or the one, maybe I should put enjoying in quotes, but the one that they're selecting when they're <laughs> voting with their feet, that that is the preferred course. Do you, Are they voting with their feet because of how it's described or word of mouth or something different? I believe overwhelmingly talking to peers from word of mouth. When I ask Siri about Stuart Tesmer, it tells me about some of the crazy stuff that you do and have done in the lab with some um, incredibly sensitive instruments on some incredibly tiny scales. It says that you have something called a helium-3 cryostat that can get down to a temperature of close, as it said, um, 300, is it millikelvin? millikelvin? That... That's exactly <laughs> right. So I'm thinking about my daughter's books again. Is that colder than like Neptune gets? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's only 0 0.3 degrees above absolute zero. To find a place like that in nature, you would be uh, far from a star. You would be, you put your thermometer out in outer space, very out of an atmosphere and far from a heat source and far from a star. Um, and look at your thermometer, it would probably, you would get to somewhere around that temperature. Hmm. So what do you, why do you need things that cold in a lab? Um, we are interested in the um, electronics and quantum mechanics that goes on in materials, including superconductors, um, materials um, from which you can build devices related to quantum computing. So really, really cool stuff in every sense of the hmm. word. And to see these incredibly um, um, interesting effects, um, you actually need these low temperatures. Typically, the superconductors that we use are um, common materials like lead or aluminum. 
they don't even become a superconductor until you get to be about one degree Kelvin or in that scale. <laughs> so you're already near absolute zero before you can really get the juicy, interesting, nice uh, physics to start happening. It's hmm. amazing. Maybe if more physicists started to describe their work as juicy, you'd get some more buy-in too. So that's a whole other conversation. When did you um, fall down the teaching and learning wormhole? Was it in a flash or was it a slow progression or how'd that work for you? Definitely a slow progression for me. My first teaching experience was as a graduate student where I more or less looked upon it as a burden of something that I had to do as a, a assistant professor at Michigan State. Um, then, you know, it was different. I was not a teaching assistant or just helping someone with their class. I was really in charge of a class for a first time. And I started to enjoy it more. And I would say probably like five or six years into my career as a professor, I really started to love it. It wasn't right away. Mm -hmm. Were you, were you mostly, stand, mostly straight lecture or were you already playing with some other things? I was highly traditional um, following my peers. Um, I will say that um, some of my colleagues were pretty ahead, well ahead of the curve in terms of giving a standardized assessment exams. So at least in realizing that grades are not a good measure of what students are learning. I would say some of the measurements that we did were, were pretty good. Um, I'll age myself now. I started teaching at Michigan State and in uh, 1998, so it's been a long time. So even way back then, we had some clue, but um, as far as the lecture goes, it was a standard lecture which gave a roadmap to the students. These are the topics that you should you should learn about. But I know that not a lot of learning actually happened in the classroom. Hmm. Well, I can age myself with you. Then I would have been. Um, in that class, probably if I was in, if I was at Michigan State in 1998. So, well, let's go back even maybe a little bit farther. Um, I've, I've assumed that our, my other guests have all had all had 100 percent uh, 3D learning experiences when they themselves were undergrads, but they say that's not true. So, is it safe to assume that your college experience was probably not what we would call 3D? It was a zero D, one D at best. Okay, so here's the question. You turned out okay. So why do we need uh why do we need to do something different? I won't say I turned out okay. Mine I was <laughs> my <laughs> I re so for me I remember my the, the professors that got like the award and stuff, they were just enthusiastically lecturing, you know, kind of running around the stage, but the, <laughs> I wasn't doing anything. But I don't know what your experience was. You know, the, the true answer, and I'm not saying I'm a person like this, but some people are going to do great no matter what their learning, what their environment was in the classroom. Um, and I'm certainly not in this category, but I do know people who hardly even needed to attend the lecture mm -hmm. because they just uh, love the topic so much. We're reading so much about it on their own time. You know, uh, there are some people that you don't have to... Um, do much of anything to um, to get them excited and get them motivated for a particular field. You know, different people clearly feel different ways about uh, courses and uh, fields of interest that they're just going to love because that's who they are. Um, mm -hmm. So there's 
you know, the main thing is um, for any class, and I don't care what topic you're teaching, there will be students like that, but there will be a vast majority of students who are not like that. And the question is, do you care to reach them as well? And do you uh, care uh, what their experience is and how much they're going to retain from this course? And um, if you have carefully thought out goals, um, are you going to reach them with the majority of your students and not just with some of your students? Yeah, and then there's those kids that they don't even have to try at all. And that's just such a kind of a bludgeon on everybody else to see that when <laughs> they can just show up when they want and and knock it out and act like it's nothing <laughs> but let me add to that um so my, one of my first really hard courses i was i grew up in seattle so i was an undergraduate at the university of washington in seattle um, i had a course called modern physics which was a first introduction to quantum mechanics among other things and i remember some some peers some men sitting in the back row that just knew everything. They basically knew it before the professor um, could say it. And they were raising their hands so fast um, that they made me and pretty much everyone else in the class feel kind of stupid. And mm -hmm. looking back on it, that was their goal. So it's really, it's getting into that category that we were talking about at the very beginning mm -hmm. of the people that use, uh, can use physics somehow as a way to, to shut out people. Right. I want to orient the audience a little bit more about you um, in terms of your, the dynamics in our group, our research group. He's the he's our group member who can often take an hour of like meandering thoughts among the 15 or 20 of us and put it in a way that's um, it's both relieving, I'd say, because he made it make sense and also unnerving because it took an hour of static to come to that moment of clarity. Where do you think you developed or, or honed that skill because it's such a useful one to have. Paul, that is about the nicest question I've ever gotten. <laughs> wow. Was, wow. Uh, Thanks for saying that. Um, I'm, I'm not stretching for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do take pride to uh, really trying to, um, to understand what people are saying because sometimes our meetings or any meetings, but I think in our group, especially we get lots of ideas bouncing back and forth. Some of which are, um, you know, it totally in line with the topic and some of which are outside of the box and we love outside of the box ideas and that's great. Um, and I do tr pride myself in trying to really listen and understand and uh, try to um, focus in on, um, you know, what's important. Mm -hmm. Okay. So given that now the pressure's on okay. how, so how would you explain um, three-dimensional learning to, say, a college science instructor who might just be learning about it or just stumbled across it? Here's my point of view of three-dimensional learning. Active learning is good in a classroom. Lots of studies show active learning where the students are doing something is helpful. Um, the question is, how do you want to do active learning and how can you make it the most helpful? And uh, the reason I love three-dimensional learning is because it, it puts the emphasis on science practices. If you're not doing uh, something that we would consider to be a science practice in the classroom, at least some of the time, um, then you're not doing three-dimensional learning. Um, that means that we value what scientists do and saying that somehow that should be part of the curriculum I can't, I probably cannot prove to you that that's the best way to learn a subject, 
but intuitively that's a really good way to learn the subject. That's a really good thing to anchor, to anchor what you're doing in the classroom. And that is why I do love three-dimensional learning. Let's put some more details on this fake person uh, okay. that we're talking to. How, how, how would you sell it to maybe a, a version of that instructor who might be on the fence with regard to the costs and the benefits, the perceived costs and the perceived benefits associated with what we you know, casually throw around as transforming a course? I have a lot of experience. Um, so some of the, the hypothetical people that, um, that you've um, constructed, uh, some people in my department are really asking themselves the same question. We have lots of uh, traditional courses being taught. We have some fraction of t courses which are transformed, and um, you would consider them to be, um, by and large, three-dimensional and certainly active learning. Um, for the folks teaching in the traditional format, they're inheriting course materials from their predecessors that are in the traditional format. The, um, the overhead of doing something that really throws out what the professor before you did and starts from scratch. Um, most people, myself included, pretty much for any course I've taught, I don't have the courage to do that. I always build and at least use the previous professor as a, some kind of starting point. Mm -hmm. So I do understand there could be a lot of overhead. Uh, my message would be that um, I, I would say you don't have to start from scratch. Um, Lots of elements for most lectures, um, certainly in physics, are fine um, in ways that you can get more activity going on in the classroom and to build some three-dimensional um, aspects of the course. Um, it's probably not as hard as, as it sounds. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's kind of a tension, um, and there's been people weighing in different places here, but it's not a quick fix. And there are little things you can do to get closer while you're, while you're kind of going through the absorption and marinating process, which you have to do, I think, to be able to apply it to a wide range of phenomena. Oh, I agree with that. Absolutely. You do have a, I think, a unusually deep kind of knowledge of the, the history of your, your department and, and kind of the path it's been on. I wonder if you could take some uh, little history lesson of physics instruction at Michigan State and let's say, well, you can give us a time horizon if you want. I was thinking 10 years, but you can go longer or shorter. Or... So the sort of the arc of um, our instruction mm -hmm. over the last 10 years? Yes. I'm most experienced with introductory courses um, in mechanics and electromagnetism uh, because those are the courses that uh, I've taught myself most of the time. I've done a little bit of everything, to be honest, in my advanced years, but mostly those um, introductory mechanics, um, circuits, and um, Maxwell's equations, and all those wonderful things. I also have uh, I've been the under, undergraduate program director for the past seven years. And those courses are the ones that require the most of my attention. So um, I have a, both the teaching uh, point of view and the administrator point of view. For my, for my department and for the introductory courses, um, doing things in a completely different way turned out to really be the recipe. Um, we had this course I already mentioned called P-Cubed. It really was created by my colleagues, Danny Caballero and Paul Irving uh, from, from scratch. They started, they, they really had the wherewithal and the time to, uh, to start from ground zero and build a course um, 
uh, that was quite independent of what had been done before, and, and P-cubed was the result. My colleagues um, in the department, physics, uh, physics and astronomy, really buy in. We, we, we've shown the data, the learning gains mostly. Um, the, we have this wonderful new uh, STEM building, which is coming online in the fall that's devoted completely to courses like P-cubed. And we are scaling up our plan um, over the next uh, half dozen years is to get more and more of our introductory physics sections like P-cubed and fewer and fewer of them taught in the traditional format. And that's the way we're gonna transform. And so we're a story, um, I'm pretty confident we're going to com completely or nearly completely transform our introductory courses to be very three-dimensional through this new initiative that was, mm -hmm. uh, that was started, um, as opposed to taking our existing courses and transferring, transforming them little by little. Mm -hmm. I think the second one is probably the more common way for transformation mm -hmm. to happen. So I'm, I think a lot of lucky circumstances are weighing into what's going on in the physics department in Michigan State. Mm -hmm. What distinguishes the trajectory of the physics department from, say, biology and chemistry, the other two disciplines that we play around with in this group? If you look at the data, which I know you have, um, um, of three-dimensional three-dimensionality and progression over time, um, you, you'll see that the physics department's hardly changing at all, except for our new courses, including P-cubed. Um, and that's not true. And it's in, um, I better be careful. It's certainly not true in chemistry. And I think it's mostly not true in biology, where there is some progression over time due to more and more people doing more um, three-dimensional and more active learning um, aspects on their courses. But, uh, and I think kind of looking back on what you said over the last few minutes, we're just looking in the wrong time bin for physics, right? And if we fast forward a little bit, once P-cube is taken hold, like the plan is for it to do, then that'll probably be a different story. Yeah, I, I would like to think so. Um, right now, the, the number of, for the past few years, the number of P-cube sections and the number of students served is a tiny blip. And we're, um, you know, compared to our overall enrollment, which is in some thousands of students. And so we're trying to make that blip bigger and bigger. And so you will see it in the data sets more in the next few years. I, sure, I certainly hope so. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but the, the, other, the other subjects have been transforming more wholesale, but also more incrementally. Mm -hmm. I think that's Is that fair, fair comparison? Yeah. Uh, I mean, chemistry was fairly quick switch, but there was a, a, a little ramp up. That is true because the clue curriculum was uh, adopted when, um, when Melanie got here, basically. You mentioned when you were given the, the elevator pitch for 3DL, you mentioned the scientific practices, which, you know, along with the cross-cutting concepts, um, are the same for all three of those disciplines. Which of those practices do you think, or in your experience, lend themselves most, most readily to physics instruction and teaching and learning? Um, as you know, um, uh, I've spent a lot of time looking at videos of lectures and uh, coding them to um, to gauge um, the um, which segments um, are three dimensional. The science practice that comes up the most often is um, making and using models. For almost all of those segments, you could also use math. I think um, you could almost interchange it and say that we checked all the boxes for. Um, for um, using math as a scientist would. Often explanations too. If you can do modeling, it seems. You're right. You're right. 
are there any practices that that, you, that don't come up very often? Um, I know that I know the answer to that is yes, but are there any that are kind of physics specific and special in that way that we don't see them? We've seen most most of the um, practices come up as um, highly skewed towards models. Hmm. Were you um, were you part of the the what have been referred to as the disciplinary discussions where the core ideas for physics were first written down and agreed upon for the college yes. level physics? Yes, um, I wasn't formally part of the 3DL team at that time. But through JT, um, he asked me to get involved with organizing discussions among um, physics uh, colleagues. To We had some interesting heated debates of what are the core ideas, and we sliced and diced them and um, ended up with a, a, a set of core ideas that are pretty much the same as everyone else's physics core ideas. <laughs> That's the one, the, the part of three-dimensional learning that... Um, had to be adopted from the K-12 setting. So what were people heated about? So the first discussions um, had ar arguments really like, how should we be teaching physics? You know, which was a little bit off topic um, because we were trying to come up with core ideas. But uh, some people uh, really valued having discussion of what do we mean by core ideas and why are core ideas core and what's the difference between just covering these topics here are the topics that we should cover then your truth is if you get more than one physicist um, um in a room and use the word model you'll get an argument that's that's the truth well it's better than everybody agreeing that it's drawing pictures i guess true i mean it's a great um, um, of course i'm being facetious but it um the idea of what do you consider to be a model is is a pretty tough question. So uh, it's mm -hmm. something worthy of the heated discussion. Sure. I don't think I'll get too much pushback if I say something like cross-cutting concepts are the black sheep of the 3D family. And I don't mean to minimize the hard work of the people who developed the framework or um, uh, Melanie or other people who have thought pretty deeply about them. Um, I don't think anyone is actually going to be offended, but <laughs> do you think of the? Do you think they're more of a uh, attack on, or are they stealthy black sheep lying in wait for the day that they come to be understood and respected by the rest of us? Oh boy, that is such a tough one because um, I also grapple with the cross cutting concepts. At the heart of it, I think right now, if you really focused on um, practices and core ideas, you're, you're getting what I want you to get. Um, maybe that's not the answer I'm supposed to say, though, <laughs> um, because the world have threes are good. It's good to have threes. And so um, <laughs> we, we need something else in cross-cutting concepts. Certainly are intuitive. Um, but if you have a core idea and you have a practice going on in your classroom, it seems like you can always also find a, um, a cross-cutting concept so that um, you can check the box for three-dimensional learning. It is sort of the black sheep, in my opinion. Yeah, I just wonder if it's if it if we've operationalized it in a certain way to make it so easy to check off. Um, so you know, people have those bumper stickers that say "I'd rather be fishing" or whatever. We're gonna we're gonna play that. I'm gonna have you pick from bumper stickers. Okay, so okay. Uh, these would not be good bumper stickers. <laughs> it's closer to like the would you rather game, but 3DL style. Okay, which, which would you rather do? Sp spend 
two hours talking about three-dimensional learning, trying to move our research agenda forward, or spend two hours teaching in front of 275 students? I, you know, it depends. Um, I'm going to say because of the anxiety levels involved, whenever you, you ramp up your, your adrenaline, getting ready for your classroom, um, you do it. Hopefully um, it was a good experience for those involved. And then you ramp down again. It ends up being way more than two hours of your energy time, of your, <laughs> of your life force sucked away from you. So I'll say that having the discussion with my colleagues. Okay. Here saving trying to save minutes off your life exactly you only have so much left <laughs> all right so let's say let's play another one more time let's say you have a a set of learning goals or whatever you whatever lingo you want to use that you really like would you rather be writing assessment questions that are aligned to those objectives or building out the class or lab or recitation whatever activities that scaffold students toward those goals so would you rather be writing assessments or planning teaching activities? Yeah, definitely the second one. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, writing exams, I don't hate it. I, you know, it's important to do it well and important not to have any flaws and make sure it's covering what you, you know, need, what you feel that it should be covering. You, you want to do it well, and I do enjoy doing it, but it's not my favorite thing to do. Uh, we would have to study you deeply if it were, if it were your favorite thing to do. I would agree with that. <laughs> Okay, I actually have one more. Would you rather? Okay. Would you rather uh, your only mode of transportation be a donkey or a giraffe? <laughs> I've ridden on a donkey, so I'll say that one. <laughs> you know, you know it can end well. Yes. All right. Well, I think we might end this conversation right around here too. I won't let you go, but I really do want to thank you, Stuart, for your time and your insight. You are appreciated by the group, and I definitely appreciate you. So thank you very much for being here. Uh, thank you if I'm allowed to uh, compliment the host. I really appreciate the way you've been uh, running um, our show and leading our, our group, and uh, keep up the great work. That'll definitely be edited out. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Please keep that. <laughs> Take care, Stuart. Take care.